Seltzer Kings podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. My name is T2756. Would you like to have sex with me now for money? Worst Movies Ever Played is back with three new VHS movies for your ears. Sextipede, you're alive again. <gasps> How I've missed you. Anything can happen in this actual play RPG podcast, and we mean anything. You didn't think you could go to Texas Instruments without murdering someone, did you? <laughs> Subscribe to Worst Movies Ever Played wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I don't know how to explain it to you, Gavin. It's like whatever you people put your bangers and mash in before they tormented you down at the public school. Ass. The following podcast contains... But swearing and using dirty words is not one of my vices. I don't use foul language, and I don't like to hear anyone else use it either. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you switched from the big plastic thermos to the shitty little juice box, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 366, the Full Metal Lunchbox edition of the show, where we talk about that status symbol of our childhood, the lunchbox. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Seltzer King's branded lunchbox. It's how you know you're cool. Are you tired of brown bagging your lunch? Miss the days when you could put your snack pack of PB&J in a big metal box and take it with you? You want to show people how much you love podcasts? Then you need a Seltzer King's branded lunchbox with all the Seltzer King stars. No, not Danny and Mike. They're on last podcast network. They don't even have their own branded lunchbox. So swing over to SeltzerKings.com and pick up your favorite SK podcaster so long as the podcaster is me because we're the only ones who have one. And to be honest, this is more of an idea than a real thing that actually exists. This is Clark's Collectibles, better known as the Lunchbox Museum. We have a little bit of everything in here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, you do. Deb Clark and her husband started the Odd Collection back in 1985. How many lunchboxes do you have? 900. 900? About, maybe a little bit more. Deb has more lunchboxes than there are days in the year, and there's something for everyone. And up here we have our Western, Flipper, and Flying Nun, Laughing, Casper, Popeye. This is very rare. If you ever wow. see that, it's probably worth a grand now. Is there is there still quite a big market for uh, lunchboxes? I just sold a barn yesterday, that barn up there. I got $30 for it. Really? Yeah. Deb has sold so many lunchbox memorabilia items that she's an eBay award-winning seller. Now, these, these are not for sale? No. But they try to get them from me. (laughs) Yeah. I've mentioned a time or two how I, man in my 50s, have embarked on a journey of buying back my childhood one foolish purchase at a time. Dad. Oh, man, you are... It began with old Dungeons and Dragons books, then I bought this Guns of Navarone playset, which sets lonely in a closet unused and gathering dust, and of late, I've been buying vinyl records from my teen years. 
Phil Collins Oreo Speedwagon. Yeah, that sort of thing. But if I really wanted to dig into nostalgia, I would need to start buying the one true grail of childhood status symbols. A lunchbox. We've got a lunchbox here. As first and second greeters, we did not measure one another's worth by our clothes. Because honestly, we were all wearing the same granules, tops, and cheap pants we were already growing out of. So we had to make do with what we had, and what we had were our lunchboxes. God help the kid that brought their lunch in a brown paper bag. You poor. Pull in your sad bologna sandwich up from that sad sack marked you as a welfare kid. But if you had the latest monstrosity feature and all the kids were watching, you stood at the top of the primary school packing order, and you damn well knew it. Now, being a child of the South, naturally my choice of lunchbox reflected my childish views of my Southern heritage. Thanks, Ku Klux Klan. What? No, 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 no. You, you couldn't be coming to a class with your KKK lunchbox in 19, 1975. I mean, 1972, sure, but we evolved by then. I'm talking about the pride of every Southern boy, and honestly, not a few Northern boys. The Duke's a goddamn hazard. Because nothing says I believe in the unvanquished rights to keep human beings as property like a cool Dodge Charger with a red flag of defeated rebellion named after a treasonous general. Every kid in the Etowah City School believed this then, and frankly, probably a lot of them still believe it now. The only difference between now and 1975 is the cool car would be slightly paler shade of orange and be named for a different treasonous failed leader who was ironically born in New York City and wouldn't be caught dead in a shithole like Hazard County or even Etowah for that matter. Because the United States of America is a country without a real founding mythology. I mean, we've got no King Arthurs or Romuluses or Remuses. I learned all about Bray Rabbit, Uncle Remus. Okay, different Remus, but definitely part of a American mythos. We've been forced to shoehorn a few archetypes into our national conscience to define how we see ourselves. Sadly, many of these involve men with guns, but for our purposes today, I want to talk about a different kind of mythological American male. The working man. And the ultimate... Working man accessory. ...is idealized in the lunchbox. Brawny men growing out to do manly things with big metal boxes filled with lovingly made food from the little woman at home, raising the next generation of God-fearing American workers to build the great things that make America strong and make the godless commies quake in their boots. The name's Zelensky. I make car parts for the American working man because that's what I am, and that's who I care about. Gene Neumann wrote in the New York Times in 1986, quote, Sandwiches are more than nourishment for the working man. They're messages from home, love letters, and clear plastic envelopes that say, you're not alone. Here's something a little special to brighten your day in case your project is running over budget or behind schedule or even amok. Husbands who eat their weekday lunches in restaurants have cut one of the intimate family ties and have placed an added burden on their wives who run the risk of repeating their midday meal at dinner, unquote. And so it was in the early days of American, a man would pack his lunch into any suitable container, perhaps even a burlap sack for his day deep in the coal mine, sucking that dust deep into his lungs. Popular containers for early lunch boxes include tobacco tins, which once emptied of their carcinogenic payload could be laden with slabs of coarse bread and cheese or perhaps some 
thick slices of ham smeared with homemade mustard because god damn it this is america and we love fucking condiments i guess the less manly among them might have used a cookie tin if they you know had a tiny penis or something but as the muscle of american manufacturing flexed the mighty metal lunch pail was born and for all you effete intellectuals out there a lunch pail is way different than a lunch box first of all Pale is a rectangular lower box with a domed lid on top where one can flip clip the most important element of any man's working lunch. Aladdin Stanley Thermos. Stanley, the top all-steel thermos bottle that's completely dependable and built to take a bounding year after year. Get the top because a thermos bottle means more to you than a picnic. It's some kind of tough thermos bottle. And they were filled with hot black coffee because only some kind of fucking pansy would want milk and sugar in his coffee in his thermos. The combination of the thermos and stolid steel construction of a lunch pail minute weighed a manly amount. It had heft to it, the kind of heft that, if necessary, you could beat some smart-ass college boy half to death on the job site for telling you about safety or some shit like that. The lunch pail also contained men's food, thick sandwiches, boiled eggs, slabs of your wife's cake, and a pint bottle of whiskey because the fresh hot java from your Stanley Thermos went better with a little splash of something to keep you on your toes. What you would not find in a lunch pail was fucking fruit. You had to be some kind of fruit to keep an apple or a pear in there. By God, that was for your kids to eat. You want something sweet? It was apple pie made with love by your wife. Keep your fucking fruits out of our lunch pails and off our goddamn job sites. This is America. And so it was. We slid headlong into the 50s and the post-war baby boom began to spill out into America schools. And they, too, wanted to be like their dads. Rudina Morose from post-war trauma, drinking heavily all night long and carrying a big goddamn metal box with food inside for their school lunch. And since this is America, it should also have branded corporate marketing all over it. From Smithsonian Magazine, written back in 2012, quote, Mickey Mouse was the first popular character to grace the front of a lunchbox in 1935, but the lunchbox's personal statement really took off in the 1950s along with television. Executives at a Nashville company called Aladdin realized they could sell more of their relatively indestructible lunchboxes if they decorated them with the fleeting icons of pop culture. Even if that Hopalong Cassidy lunchbox was barely scratched, the kid whose newest fancy was the Lone Ranger would want to trade in his pail for the latest model, unquote. Aladdin came out of the well-familiar Mantle Lamp Company out of Chicago, Illinois. I know of them. As a subsidiary making vacuum bottles, which translated naturally into making thermoses for the aforementioned hot coffee. By the 1940s, they were churning out big metal lunch pails that helped America win the war against the Axis. And once the boys came home and boinked their wives, Aladdin realized the real money was in making shit for all them damn kids people were pumping out. So they did what corporations do, and they licensed themselves a character. What character, you might ask? Here he comes, here he comes, there's the trumpets, there's the drums, here he comes, along Cassidy. Now, for those of you who do not know who Hopalong Cassidy is, welcome to my world, because yeah, I'm old as shit, but I'm not that fucking old. He was some sort of cowboy or something, though given his name, he could just as easily be a cartoon rabbit. 
This isn't a podcast about genocidal frontiersmen glamorized in Hollywood. It's about their faces on the lunchboxes. The important thing to know that Hopalong, be he rabbit or genocidal lunatic, was really popular. In the first years of year, first year of production, Aladdin went from making 50,000 lunchboxes to 600,000. Before long, Superman, Mickey Mouse, and the Jetsons joined Hopalong on the box, and American kids were toting their lunches in branded metal boxes at $2.39 a pop. That's almost 30 bucks in today's money because love does not come out of brown paper bag. It would be much harder to name a television show that did not have a lunchbox by the mid-1960s. Laugh-In, which was not a show for kids, was downright naughty for its day. It had its own lunchbox. Suck it to me, honey. I could spend a long time trying to explain Laugh-In to you, but let's just say it was kind of like Saturday Night Live, but it was consistently funny. And it wasn't just TV shows either. The Beatles had a lunchbox, which made sense because the Beatles were on everything back then, including your mom. The Partridge family wasn't a real band, but they still had more musical talent than the Monkees, and both of them had their own lunchbox. The Harlem Globetrotters had one, and every cartoon character under the sun. Jonathan Livingston Seagull had a lunchbox. Lost. Oh, pod friends, if I could give you just one single moment in the brain of the 1970s, it would be occupied with Jonathan Livingston Seagull phenomena. Jonathan came out of a a novella written by some dude named Richard Bach. Are you Stephen King? No, that was Richard Bachman. Bach wrote about a seagull, a regular ass seagull who was trying to learn about life and flight and a homily about self-perfection. Everyone alive at the time read Jonathan Livingston Seagull and gleaned life lessons from a book about a bird that shits all over everything and eats fucking garbage. Man, that took me back to the 70s, huh? So, of course, he had his own lunchbox. Kat Lonsdorf wrote for NPR back in 2016, quote, The Partridge family, the Adams family, the $6 million man, the bionic woman, everything that was on television ended up on a lunchbox, says Alan Woodall. He's the founder and the creator of the Lunchbox Museum in Columbus, Georgia. It was a great marketing tool because kids were taking that TV show to school with them, and then when they got home, they had them captured back on TV. The new trend was also a great example of planned obsolescence, would all ads. Kids would beg for a new lunchbox every year to keep up with the newest characters, even if their old lunchbox was still in great shape and perfectly usable, unquote. It was a great time to be a kid, and speaking for myself, I did love my lunchbox. It was harder to express your identity as a kid back in those days. We all pretty much dressed the same way and whatever was cheapest, and no parent in their right mind was going to shell out good goddamn money for designer clothes that would be worn for about three months before they were too small or worn out for anybody to wear anymore. We're all too young to be into music, and even if we were into the music, all the music that we were listening to was basically from PBS. you couldn't differentiate yourself that way. All you had was your favorite show and the lunchbox that let the world know what your favorite show was. Simpler times. 
It was you in a big-ass metal box against the world to let the world know how you felt about things. And therein lies the rub, pod friends. The big-ass metal box. That sounds dangerous. You see, I'm not kidding when I tell you that these boxes were not the cheap crap produced today. They were thick. They were thick metal and built to take all the beatings an eight-year-old could dole out on the fucking playground. They weighed maybe two pounds empty, but packed with a sandwich, chips, Little Debbie snack case, and a thermos filled with nourishing Campbell's chicken noodle soup, you had yourself a hefty box at all the hard edges and suitable for whapping the shit out of Kevin when he called you a four-eyed geek out by the jungle gym. Therefore, they had to go. From inventors.org, quote, metal lunchboxes were banned in the early 1970s as a result of a concerned Florida mothers against steel lunchboxes. Children being children were using the metal lunchboxes as a type of weapon. Cases of permanent head injuries were being reported. The state of Florida banned the sales of metal lunchboxes in 1972, and other states soon followed in the banning. Box makers switched from metal boxes to softer plastic boxes. The last steel metal lunchbox was, a sto- was Sylvester Stallone's Rambo model, produced by KST in 1985, unquote. That's right. People were worried that kids would get hurt from a weapon, or in this case, an object being used as a weapon, a totally legal object that anyone could purchase, carry, and use anytime or in any way they wanted with no restrictions or limitations on them in any fashion, that indeed you had a goddamn right as an American to possess and use as you saw fit. You could modify it any way you desire, fill it with any kind of consumable you could imagine, These were status symbols. These were American icons, and now they're calling them dangerous and saying that something had to be done because... Think of the children. Won't somebody please think of the children? And so it was that we had to sacrifice a tiny, insignificant amount of our personal freedom in the name of the children because it was the right thing to do. And this was in Florida. Except, of course, they didn't think of the children. Going back to the article, NBR, quote, Concerned parents in several states proposed bans on metal lunchboxes, claiming the kids were using them as weapons to hit one another. There's a lot on the internet about a statewide ban in Florida. But the few days worth of digging around by a historian at the Florida State Historical Society, thanks Ben DiBiase, found no such legislation, unquote. It's total bullshit, because no one, especially no one in Florida, would dream of banning anything that might save a child's life, even if it was a fucking lunchbox. Like with so many things, the whole thing, the whole idea of metal lunchboxes being banned is fucking Marilyn Manson's fault. Nancy Mock wrote on Mash.com in 2021, quote, One thing that probably helped fuel this myth, it was a song released in 1995 by heavy metal rocker Marilyn Manson titled lunchbox in an article for rolling stone manson shared that he wrote the song about his childhood kiss lunchbox which he used to defend himself on the playground so maybe the claims of lunchboxes as weapons had some truth to them well it's coming from Marilyn manson i wouldn't bet on it in this piece manson also referenced the reported lunchbox ban calling it a way to deter delinquents unquote i mean come on people Marilyn manson is a lot of things a shitty musician a domestic abuser But he didn't kill the metal lunchbox. Do you know what killed the metal lunchbox? Now, think hard. This podcast has a theme. 
In this case, it wasn't Ronald Reagan. Therefore, it had to be... Capitalism. You goddamn right. I mean, come on, of course it was. Because metal lunchboxes were expensive to make. But shitty plastic lunchboxes or the vinyl lunchboxes were dirt cheap to make and could be sold for the exact same price as the durable metal ones. Gone were the days of press metal logos and painted on characters that would last for decades. And here to stay were the flimsy plastic totes with stickers on them that broke on the second week of school, necessitated a replacement or the dreaded brown bag. By the mid-80s, cheap plastic shit had fully replaced the metal monsters of the good old days, and the Aladdin Company happily churned out fragile little boxes of vinyl for a decade or so, until it was discovered that the vinyl they were using to make the lunchboxes for the kids was filled with fucking lead. Of course it was. I mean, we had spent all that time taking lead out of paint and then out of our gasoline. How else were the kids supposed to get their vitally needed lead if it didn't come off the cheap plastic shit they carried their lunch to school in? Do you people even have capitalism? And so it became as it is today where kids carry their gluten-free soy cheese and fake meat lunchables in some cloth sack contained in plastic containers made without parabens or even lead, I'm assuming. They probably have ones with an app that protects you from peanut particles in the surrounding atmosphere because apparently peanuts can kill these days. All because someone wanted to keep the kids safe from peanuts, lead, and heavy metal lunchboxes. But don't worry, don't worry, we're still going to keep the guns. You can, of course, buy yourself an OG lunchbox on the secondhand market. It's thriving and you can grab a 1965 Monsters for just 1200 bucks. An A-team is running for around 400 in shitty condition. And of course, you gotta be careful not to get a knockoff because of course, folks these days are Etsying up new metal lunchboxes with old IP on them and selling them for outrageous prices. <laughs> and that's if they acknowledge their knockoffs. And other people are just letting you assume that your KISS lunchbox for 300 bucks is real when you could have bought it on Etsy for 90. Now that's capitalism. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. It's a little truncated and we're running a little late because your humble pod host had some tummy troubles this week. I mean, it was probably something that I'd ate. Directly related to how much alcohol you can Bite me, Gavin. But I managed to boot and rally, literally in this case, to wrap up the script late. But you know what? You didn't even know it because unless you're a patron on our Patreon, patreon.com slash what the hell podcast, which you aren't, you wouldn't even know it's late. Now, look, I'm not mad about this, but I, I am a little disappointed. Speaking of not being angry, but disappointed, rate and review this show so other people could find us and listen to it and be both angry and disappointed in you for suggesting it. I want you to do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing. Otherwise, he will show up at your house, take a sandwich out of his Marilyn Manson lunchbox and eat it without even offering you a bite. 
So for me, Dave, this motherfucker's gonna get my metal Bledsoe, producer. I got my lunchbox and I'm armed real well. If only that was the only thing the Americans were armed with. Gavin and all the fictional bullied kids on the schoolyard, we want to say, I got the pencils in my pocket. Try to put me down. Want to go out? Got to get out to the playground. And we'll see you all next week. stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website whatthehellpodcast.com or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast or on Facebook as What the Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this so I take a small bow. Your favorite movie with Jonathan Livingston Seagull. You- Seltzer Kings. Podcasts.